So we're going to begin reading in Exodus 25, verse 10. You ready? Ready or not. And they shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two and a half cubits shall be its length, a cubit and a half its width, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold inside and out. You shall overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold all around. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them in the four corners. Two rings shall be on one side and two rings on the other side. And you shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark that the ark may be carried by them. The poles shall be in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony which I will give you. And you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits shall be its length and a cubit and a half its width. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work you shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end and the other cherub at the other end. You shall make the cherubim at the two ends of it of one piece with the mercy seat. And the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and they shall face one another. The faces of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you. And there I will meet with you, and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are on the ark of the testimony, about everything which I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. That is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your gospel. Even right here in these pages, in these verses, Lord, is the gospel written so clear to us Father, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear. Open our hearts and open our minds that your good word, that the powerful gospel would find entrance and it would change and transform us for your glory. We ask this, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so here in the verses I just read, God gives instruction for the ark and for the mercy seat. So the ark and the mercy seat were two different things, two different pieces. They went together, but they were two different items. So we're going to talk about the ark. We're going to talk about the mercy seat. We're going to talk about some cherubim today, too. So let's start with the ark. These verses I just read give the pattern for the ark of the testimony. The size of the ark. So, if you notice, the Bible does not use the metric system or the English system. A cubit, I guess that could have been the old English system. Nobody really knows exactly how big a cubit is. They actually have a pretty good idea. But the problem is, different parts of the world use different sized cubits. So, it could have been an Egyptian cubit, could have been a Persian cubit. could have been anywhere from 18 inches to 21 inches. But here's what we know. Depending on the actual size of the cubit described here, the size of the ark would have been 45 to 53 inches. 
long. It would have been 27 to 32 inches high and wide. So if we think about those dimensions, picture a box about four feet long by two and a half feet wide and two and a half feet tall. But realize this. With God, there is no such thing as about or approximately. God doesn't deal with that. We may not know exactly the dimension, but Moses did, and he made sure that it was built exactly to specification. And this ark and this mercy seat would have been built with the finest craftsmanship. If you just pay attention to the detail of how this is made, you realize when it says hammered work of one piece, they hammered, they shaped all of that gold into this beautiful, ornate, these cherubim that sat on top of that mercy seat. So there's the size of the ark, about four feet long by two and a half feet wide and two and a half feet tall. And then God tells Moses how to construct it out of acacia wood. Tells him the kind of wood to use. And then you take that wood and you overlay it inside and out with pure gold. And it had a gold frame or a gold border all the way around it. And each corner had a gold ring. And these four golden rings were used to slip two poles in, also made of acacia wood, also covered in gold. And then they would use those golden poles to carry this ark. And then within the ark, there was going to be something put. God said to Moses, put the testimony that I will give you inside the ark. So these were the tablets that, upon which the Ten Commandments were written. And they were inside of the ark. And so God gave Moses the specifications, the details of all that was to be constructed and crafted. God didn't approximate. He didn't estimate. He instructed Moses exactly what it was supposed to be. So here's what God didn't do. God wasn't standing up there with his big hands going, Now Moses, I want you to build me a box nah, about, about this big and about this tall and about that's not what God did God gave Moses detailed instruction and that's important for us so this is the importance of reading the Bible you know you will never know who God is if you don't read his word you will never know who God is if you do not read what God is inspired to be written for him you can hear all kinds of opinions you can read all kinds of man inspired books you can have your own vain imagination your own feeling your own belief about who God is but you will never know who God is if you do not read God's word and you can't just read some of God's word That'd be like going to a, I don't know what your favorite movie is, you know. Uh, my favorite movie, I love The Lord of the Rings. I love the books. I read the books. I read all the books. I read the trilogy. I read The Hobbit. I read The Silmarillion. I, 
I loved all of Tolkien's writing. And I can remember when I was a, a, a high school student, graduating from high school, and I went to work for my first job for the highway department, and, and there was this other student that was working there who came from college. And I didn't know him until I met with him and, and, and until we started working together. But he, was a, he had read the, the trilogy as well. And we, I can remember we'd sit there and we would just dream, man, I wonder if they'll ever make a movie about these books. And back then, it was like, yeah, they probably can't make a movie about these books because it's just, you know. Well, lo and behold, they did. You know, understanding who God is, it would be like whatever your favorite movie might be. It would be like sitting down and watching two minutes of it and, and think you know everything about all the characters and, and everything about this movie. And in two minutes, you'll never know all the twists and turns. You'll never know that you'll never be able to know. But yet, this is what people do with the Scripture. They take what other people say. They never bother to read themselves. They take what they believe in their own heart because it's what they want to believe. It's, what they, it's who they want God to be. Because we all have this image of who we want God to be. But we don't control who God is. And so here, God is giving Moses detailed instruction. And we see this throughout the Bible. We see this when God is, is giving endless genealogies, and we wonder, why in the world is, I, you know, I'm just going to skip this. No, don't skip that. Because God put it there for a reason. What are all these numbers? Why does God give, like, numbers? Some, you know, sometimes he'll tell us exactly the number of years or exactly the number of days. I don't know what that means. Well, you might not know what it means, but God does know what it means. And you might not know what it means because God hasn't revealed it to you yet. But he would not have bothered to put it in his word if it were not important. And God is giving Moses exact measurements here. And what this tells us is that God is concerned with the details. In fact, what this shows us is that he is Lord of the details. And we don't always like that. This attribute of God, God being in control of the details, often challenges our faith. As humans, we inherently trust our own ability to control the details. How many of you men... If absolutely given the choice, you will drive every time because you don't trust anyone else being in control behind that wheel. Nothing wrong with that. We can choose who drives the car or not. But when we take those little things of control that we don't really think much of and then all of a sudden something that we can't control comes into our life and we want to control it we try to control it and we can't control it and we become frustrated and angry and upset because i can't control this now that's a problem because this is the god of creation he's in control of the details 
we stress, we become angry, we even panic because we can't control the details of our life. And at the very least, we inherently feel we need a reasonable explanation for the details we can't control or the details we can't make sense of. And since the beginning, this has been man's problem. And since the beginning, God has ever commanded that we trust Him. And God does things on purpose to remind us that ultimately we are not in control. He is. So you have this ark, this box. It's literally a box. That's what the word ark means. It means a box. You say, oh, there's not much spiritual about a box. It's just a box. That's what it is. Remember, four feet long, two and a half feet tall, about two and a half feet wide. It's a box. It's an ark. And on top of that ark, then God says to Moses, build a mercy seat. A covering. The Hebrew word there for ark is a word that simply means box. That Hebrew word translated into English, mercy seat, is a Hebrew word that means covering or lid. But you notice that it's not called the lid. <laughs> it's called the mercy seat. God instructed Moses to make a covering for the ark, a lid, if you will. The ark and the mercy seat are two separate pieces, but they go together. This covering is called a mercy seat. The mercy seat literally means covering, and it's a covering that literally fits over. It's the lid to the box, to the ark. But it pictures something much more than just a lid that goes on a box. The mercy seat pictures the place that God would meet with his people. We, it was an accident. Well, it, was, it really wasn't. God ordained we read the psalm we read today. I didn't know what psalm we were going to read today. It's just our call to worship. We have one every week. It follows a, you know... We just follow this pattern. And that psalm today, if you paid attention when Mr. Rao read the call to worship, in that psalm today it talked about the God who dwells between the cherubim. That's a direct reference to this mercy seat. Because on this mercy seat were two cherubim. And God says, this is the place I will meet with you. This is where I will dwell between the cherubim. So God instructs Moses to make this mercy seat, this lid, this covering. And he says, this is the place that, that he would meet with him between the cherubim. And as with all things, God does this with purpose. God does it to remind his people to teach his people. Well, what is God reminding his people of? Well, he's reminding them of their sin. He's reminding them of their fall and the resulting judgment that came. But just as the mercy seat sat above the law, what was in that box? God says, put the testimony, put the law in the box. And then on top of the law, on top of the word, 
put a mercy seat. Now, a lot of people who don't read their Bibles, who even profess to be believers, have this mistaken thought that God gave the law to his people so that the people could use the law to become righteous. That's not why God gave the law. Because we, the Bible so clearly teaches us, not just in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament. It is impossible for us to become righteous by keeping the law because we cannot keep the law. Because what God demands is not an approximate keeping of the law. You know, if you'll just, if, if you'll just almost keep the law, then I'm good if you're good. No, that's not how God works. There is no approximate keeping. There's no almost keeping. What God demands is absolute, absolute perfection of you and of me. And that is what the law presents, is God's demand for absolute perfection. And if we break the law, and I'm not talking about shattering it in a million pieces, I mean, if you just scratch it, if you just put a nick in it, it's not perfect any longer. And, and so Jesus says, and Paul writes, listen, if you're going to live by the law, if you're going to live by the law, and you just break one of them, you've broken them all. Jesus said, oh, you think you've done really good because you haven't actually committed adultery, and you haven't actually committed murder, but, but here's the deal, people. If you just, in your heart, in your mind, lust after someone, you've, you've committed sexual immorality. If you just, in your heart, in your mind, want to think about, man, I could kill that guy. You've just murdered your brother, and you are guilty of breaking the law. And there's no hope for you, because God demands absolute But notice, the law is put in the box, and upon the box, above the law, is the mercy seat. The place where God would meet with his people. So God is reminding his people of something here. He's reminding them of their sin, of their fall, of the resulting judgment. And just as the mercy seat set above the law that magnified and magnifies our sin, God set hope above judgment. God places the mercy seat upon the ark to remind his people that along with sin, along with the fall, along with the judgment, there is a promise of hope. The ark and the mercy seat picture God's promise of salvation. Now, the average American, maybe not so much now because it's old, and it's hard to even believe it's that old. I remember, um, you know, when Raiders of the Lost Ark came out. Now you probably watch that on the classic TV channel or something. I don't know. Raiders, who's seen Raiders of the Lost Ark? Oh, come on. Is that all? If you've never seen it, you need to watch it. Really great. Indiana Jones. You know, 
that's where a lot of people get their theology about the Ark of the Covenant. They're watching Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark. We watch an Indiana Jones movie about the Ark of the Covenant, and we think we know everything about it. Oh, yeah, that's that magic box. You know, if you open it up, it kills everybody. And, and, and you know, that's kind of funny, but that's really true. This is how we get our theology. We watch movies. We watch entertainment news. We hear people pontificate about their opinion about God. And we take that as the gospel instead of actually reading the gospel for ourselves. And it resonates with our feeling. Oh, yeah, that feels, oh, that sounds true. It can resonate with you all day long. It doesn't mean it's true. It just means you're both wrong. Because the only person that's true and the only person that's right is God. And he gave us the answers right here. But we don't bother to read them because watching Indiana Jones and learning about the ark from a Hollywood movie is a lot easier than actually reading your Bible. And it's way more entertaining, right? Wrong. So we need to go back to the garden to understand what God is doing. So remember... Israel is three months out of Egypt. Moses is on the mountain. He's getting all this from God. God's downloading onto a tablet <laughs> what he wants Moses to get. And, and we, think, we think we're all wonderful because we have tablets and we can download now. But listen, God was doing that long before we even had a thought or were a thought. So here's Moses up on the mountain. God's downloading to his tablet. And he's telling him all this stuff, giving him all this instruction. Three months out of Egypt, he's given this to Moses to give to the children of Israel. And it may escape us, but it does not and did not, I believe, escape Moses. The imagery God was giving him as he gave him instruction concerning this. So we need to go back to the Garden of Eden to understand what God is doing. After the fall, remember the story? God creates man, then he, he on purpose creates the woman from the side of man because this is a picture of Christ and his church. Because who are we? We are the people of God, the children of God. And how were we born? We were born again of Christ Jesus from his life. He's given us his life. This is why God did everything he did. This wasn't a man writing this to, to somehow um, uh, oppress women. This is God painting a picture of his plan of salvation that he would send his son and from the life of his son, from the very body, from the very flesh and blood of his son, he would birth his bride, the church. That's what Genesis 2 is about. That's why God didn't create Eve from the dirt like Adam was created from the dirt because that was, that was a picture of Christ and his church. And so we go back to the garden and we know the story. God gave them one no and, and millions of yeses. And what did they do? They went for the one no. They sinned. They did not believe God. They disobeyed God. They sinned. They fell and judgment came to them to the dragon and to the entire creation 
Genesis 3.15. So God's pronouncing judgment, and he's talking to the serpent or to the dragon here. Here is God speaking to the dragon, Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You really should pay attention when you read the Bible because there's a lot right there in just those few words of that one verse. It tells us a lot about God. It tells us a lot about his creation. It tells us a lot about redemption. It tells us a lot about salvation. For instance, enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, he's distinguishing here. And then he says, he, the seed of the woman, he will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So God declared the judgment upon the dragon. And in that judgment is the promise of the dragon's destruction that would be the salvation of the world. He, the seed, that is Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman, will crush the head of the dragon... There is the promise to destroy the works of the devil in bringing about the salvation of the world. By grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, God would redeem men from every tongue, from every tribe, from every nation in the world. 1 John 3, 8. John writes, He who sins is of the devil. Actually, what that technically means there, he who practices sin, he who lives a lifestyle of sin, he who keeps on sinning, as a practice of their life is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Jesus, the promised seed of the woman, has come and he has destroyed the works of the devil. He has brought salvation to the world, to any and to all who trust in him as the only name under heaven by which men may be saved. Listen, understand this don't let anyone tell you any different and remind them when you hear them speaking erroneously there's only one race it's the human race marva might have different color skin than i do but me and marva are both of the same race and we are both children of god you might be darker you might be lighter it doesn't matter it doesn't matter what country of origin you come from it doesn't matter who your mama was who your grandmama was what really matters is who your father is and is Adam your father or is, is God your father? Have you been not only born, but have you been born again of the Spirit? And when God says he's going to save the world, what God says is he's going to save the human race. We're not just saying salvation only belongs to the Jews. Salvation only belongs to this group that belongs to this particular church or denomination. No. That's why we confess every week we believe in the Catholic, the universal church of believers all over the earth throughout all of history, from every tribe, from every tongue, from every race. And this, in Genesis 3.15, is what God promised would happen. He would send the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ. He would crush the head of the serpent, and he would bring about the salvation of of the world so the seed has come he has destroyed the works of the devil he has brought salvation 
to those, to any and to all who trust in Him as the only way to the Father. Our trust in Jesus will not only save us from hell, but it will transform us and conform us to the very image of the Son of God. By grace, through faith in Jesus, we become new creations. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That's what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Jesus Christ is our mercy seat. All this from a lid to a box. You see, it's not just a lid for a box. This is why the Bible calls it the mercy seat. It's a covering it speaks of that which would cover our sins, but it foreshadows the one who would come and not just cover our sins, but take away our sin. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 5. The writer of Hebrews says, and above it, talking about the Ark of the Covenant, were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. And the writer of Hebrews is talking about this, writing about this, saying, these things from the Old Covenant these things that God gave to Moses that the children of Israel drug around the desert for 40 years and David drug it around then David eventually built Solomon built a temple all of those things the writer of Hebrews says those were copies of the original of the true and of the heavenly Romans 3 24 and 26 being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ whom God set forth to be a who can say that word propitiation who in the heck knows what that word even means most people read their bible and they get tongue-tied right there and they can't even say that word and so the easiest way and we say well it means atoning sacrifice so we we say don't worry about saying propitiation just say whom god set forth as an atoning sacrifice by his blood and that's true but do you know what that word really is that word literally is mercy seat so here's what Paul really is saying. Here's what the Jews who were hearing Paul, the letter Paul wrote, here's what they heard. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a mercy seat by his blood. It's the very same word that we just read in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 5. It's the mercy seat. Jesus is our mercy seat. Through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God had passed over, he had covered the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at this present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And the one who has faith in Jesus does not just have their sins covered, the one who has faith in Jesus, the mercy seat, has now their sins taken away. The word in Hebrews 9.5, translated mercy seat, is the very same word in Romans 3.25, translated propitiation. They're the same word. They both are mercy seat. And it's picturing that, that covering, that lid, that mercy seat covering the ark is a picture is a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ who is our true mercy seat. So Jesus is more than just a covering for sin. That covering or that mercy seat speaks 
of the mercy and the grace of God that covered man's sin until the true ark, the true mercy seat, came. So think about this. God gives the law to Moses up on the mountain. Moses brings the law back down. And so once the law is instituted, all the way until Jesus comes. So for 1,500 years, this is what Israel was supposed to do. Once a year, once the tabernacle's built, once the ark's been constructed, the mercy seat's there, it's in the holy of holies. Remember, it's behind these series of veils. And once a year, and only once a year, could the high priest go into the Holy of Holies, and he would carry the blood of the sacrifice, and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat. And that covered the sins of the nation for that year. But guess what? Next year, same time, same place, that high priest, or whoever was high priest at that time, that high priest would go into that Holy of Holies again, and he would sprinkle that blood. And that was to be done perpetually. Well, not only that, but then you had, at the very same time, daily, daily, you know what daily is, daily, twice a day, once in the morning and once in the evening, once at 9 o'clock in the morning and once at 3 o'clock every afternoon, a lamb was slaughtered and offered up to God. This happened daily in the tabernacle. It happened daily in the temple. It was to happen perpetually. So you had the yearly sacrifice, you had the daily sacrifices offered by the priest in the tabernacle in the temple. But not only that. Now here we are, citizens of Israel, just minding our own business and we sin or we transgress or we accidentally do something that violates god's law guess what we are required to do we are required and god when he gives the law to moses he prescribes all of this whatever whatever it is we might have done purposefully or accidentally god prescribes the offering the sacrifice that has to be brought so nationally once a year daily every day twice a day sacrifices are offering then individually you are required to bring sacrifice to god based on what may or may not be happening in your life and all of the sacrifice and all this blood so you begin to get the picture you realize this is a bloody mess and we don't think about it. we have such a romantic notion of what this must have been like but in reality it was a bloody mess there was death and blood constantly taking place. And do you know why? God did that on purpose. You know why God did that? Because God never wants us to forget that our sin brings about death. Our sin is messy. Our sin is deadly. And Israel knows this better than anyone knows it. Because God drilled it into them. There is no forgiveness of sin there is no remission of sin without the shedding of blood and blood was shed constantly to cover their sin all of that blood of bulls and of goats and of little lambs could never take away their sin it could only 
cover their sin. And it was only accepted by God because God is graceful. Don't ever think that God is satisfied with the blood of the bulls and goats because he's not, because he tells us. I was never satisfied with that. All of that was picturing, was foreshadowing, that was copies, it was it was the symbol of the substance that was coming. It was the shadow of the substance that was coming. And when the substance arrives, guess what? We don't, we don't look to the shadow anymore. And the reason these sacrifices couldn't take away our sin is because sin is not what we do. Sin is who we are. This notion that we're born safe, that we're born good, that all people are basically good, you will never, ever find that anywhere in the Scripture. Hollywood will tell you that. Humanism will tell you that. All kinds of people will tell you that, but God will never, ever tell you that. God will never tell you humans are born good. The Bible teaches that we are born in sin and in death. So sin is not what we do. Sin is who we are. It goes to the very depth of our DNA. And the only thing that can change who we are by nature is not by learning better tricks, more moralistic behavior. It is by being born again. And this is exactly what Jesus says. So Jesus doesn't just cover our sin. Jesus takes away our sin. John the Baptist recorded for us in John one twenty nine when he sees Jesus coming, he's baptizing in the Jordan. It says the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold! The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You notice what John did not say. He didn't say, behold, the one who's going to cover our sin really good. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. As a Jew, we would have heard that and it would have caught our attention. The sin of the world. John's not preaching universal salvation and the Bible does not preach universal salvation. Here is John baptizing Jews in the river Jordan. And he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, who does the world include? Well, it certainly includes Israel, the people of God, the chosen people of God. But guess who else it includes? It includes the Gentiles who were... The Jews didn't even associate with them except they had to. They were forced to. But given their choice, if they could set up their kingdom... They would have banished all Gentiles. They would have never even associated with them. And John says, Jesus, this Jesus is going to save the world. He's going to save Jew and Gentile. He's going to save everybody, even the people you hate. Even the people you don't want to be saved. God's going to make a way for them to be saved. You see, Jesus doesn't cover our sin. He takes away our sin, and he takes away the sin of the world. So here is Jesus, the true mercy seat of God. Jesus, the substance that that mercy seat foreshadowed. Jesus, the word made flesh that dwelt among us. In the tabernacle, God would meet with his people between the cherubim above the mercy seat. Now God meets with us in Jesus Christ, his son, the sinless lamb of God. The mercy seat on earth was a temporary covering for our sin, but the true heavenly ark and the true heavenly mercy seat who is jesus christ is the eternal solution to our sin problem hebrews 
chapter 10, verse 11, every priest stands ministering daily, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. This is the Bible. So don't take my word for it. Listen to what the Bible is saying. But this man, Jesus Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sacrificed, sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, for after he had said before, this is my covenant that I will make with them. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them then he adds their sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more now where there is remission of these there is no longer an offering of sin God is writing on tablets of stone his testimony his law to give to Moses to put in the ark the Bible says there's coming a day when no longer God's going to write these on tablets of stone but he's going to write them on the hearts of his people Church, that day has come. It is today. It is now. Jesus Christ is the offering for sin that has eternally taken away our sin by becoming sin for us. God no longer remembers our sin. He no longer requires an offering for sin because Jesus has finished his work and we are complete in him. We can never and we will never be complete in anything or anyone else other than Jesus. No matter how much we think we know, no matter how much we think we can control the details of our life, it is insufficient. It is in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, that we stand complete in the presence of God the Father. So there's an ark, there's a mercy seat, and on that mercy seat are cherubim. Cherubim are mysterious creatures that people speculate a lot about, but in reality, we don't know a whole lot about them. So we're not going to really talk about cherubim much because I'm out of time. But I do want you to understand something about them. Two things that we do know for sure. They are created beings. They are created beings. And the second thing is this they are closely associated with their creator. In fact, cherubim throughout the scripture, when they're mentioned, are always seen in the presence of God. So the presence of God and cherubim are linked together. Cherubim are introduced for the very first time to us in Genesis 3.24. And do you know what the context of their introduction is? It's after the fall of man. Let me read to you Genesis 3.24. I read to you Genesis 3.15, which gave us the judgment on the, on the dragon and the promise of our salvation. Now here's Genesis 3.24. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So this picture that we just read in that one verse really reveals a lot more than we, than we often or may understand at first glance. Let me read you two, uh, two paragraphs, one from a man named John Gill. And he says, So the words may be rendered, and he inhabited the cherubim, or dwelt over or between the cherubim, 
before or at the east of the Garden of Eden. This document called the Jerusalem Targum says it this way, and God made the glory of his Shekinah or glorious majesty to dwell of old at the east of the Garden of Eden over or above the two cherubim or between them. Let me read you another commentary, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. This passage should be rendered thus, and he dwelt between the cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden, and a fierce fire or Shekinah unfolded itself to preserve the way of the tree of life. This was the mode of worship now established to show God's anger at sin and teach the mediation of a promised Savior as the way of life as well as of access to God. They were the same figures as were afterwards at the tabernacle and temple. And now as then, God said, I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat between the two cherubim. Where did Cain and Abel encounter God? It could have been at the east gate of the garden where God dwelt between the cherubim. And it was not a picture of two angels holding swords. Stay away, stay away. It's a picture of the cherubim who dwell in the presence of God. And between those cherubim is the manifest presence of God manifesting as a flaming sword This is the presence of God, the glory of God manifest. And that is where God dwelt between the cherubim. And when God instructs Moses to build a mercy seat, how does he tell Moses to build it? Put two cherubim on it. And I will appear to you. I will meet with you above the mercy seat between the two cherubim. God's taken Moses back to the garden because we might not realize it, but, but Moses understood what God was saying. It's an interesting picture in light of how God instructed him to build this mercy seat, placing the cherubim. God placed himself between them. God in his holiness and unapproachable presence manifest himself between the cherubim as the flaming sword, the living Word of God. Man could never in his sinful nature approach God and live without grace and mercy covering him. Just as God had to cover Moses in the cleft of the rock as he passed before him, allowing Moses to see only the hind part of his glory. Man in his sinful nature would never gain access to the tree of life. Man in his sinful nature would never gain access to the presence of God until man's sin nature was taken away. And that's not taken away by our work. That is taken away by the work of Jesus Christ. And in that work, Jesus Christ makes it possible for you. He makes a way for you to be born again. So the picture of Genesis 3.24 is not two angels holding flaming swords. It's the manifest presence of God in all of his glory dwelling between the cherubim. And this is why God gave the Ark of the Testimony, or as we better know it, the Ark of the Covenant. It pictures and it foreshadows Christ 
who is the true ark. And just like that box contained the testimony of God, Jesus Christ is the word of God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The ark and the mercy seat, like all of Scripture, like the very words of Jesus himself, reveal that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no life. There is no other truth. There is no other way. Christ is our only hope. Amen? Let's get ready to come to the table. I'm going to give you your charge. We're going to pray for our food next door. Then we're going to go have lunch. The Bible says now is the time. Today is the day of salvation. Christ Fellowship, this is the time. This is your time of visitation on this earth. What you're going to do for God, this is the life you are to do it in. So I challenge you, as Jesus called us salt and called us light, I challenge you that we would go and we would be salt and light to the world around us. John writes in his first letter, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for He shall, we shall see Him as He is. The world doesn't know you because it does not know God. Jesus has put us on this earth to make Him known through our words and through our lives. Being the church is not just a place you come to. Being the church is how you live your life, what you say and what you do every day. And we are charged by God Himself, commanded by God Himself to go out into the world and to be a beacon of light and to be salt and to make a difference Will you be persecuted? Will they call you names? Will they misrepresent you and misunderstand you? Yes, they will. But Jesus said, don't worry about that. They did that with me. In fact, they crucified him. I doubt they're going to crucify you literally. So endure whatever hardship you have to and go into this world and be the salt and be the light that God has commanded you to be. And do it because he gave himself so that we could have life and have it eternal. He did not just cover your sin. He took it away by giving his body and pouring out his blood. It is our privilege to serve him and to be his hands and his feet and his body in the earth. So I charge you to be that. Amen.